I'm Bob Dickey, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Leap Podcast. My guest today is Danny Fazenfeld. Danny is a multifaceted talent in the entertainment industry, known for his versatile contributions as an actor, singer, songwriter, public speaker, and writer. With a rich career that spans across various mediums, Danny has left his mark on audiences worldwide. He is recognized for his role as Gil on The Young and the Restless and for his compelling presence on YouTube with over 250 million views. As the face of multiple national campaigns for major brands like Jeep, Chrysler, and Five Hour Energy, Danny's influence in advertising is undeniable, notably setting trends with his viral campaign for Nordnet. His voice acting prowess is showcased in the Oscar-winning Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and he stars in several major animation features, including Chicken and Hare, The Hamster of Darkness, and Latte in the Magic Waterstone, both acclaimed on Netflix. Danny is also the voice behind Bogota, a globally celebrated series, Money Heist. On screen, Danny's notable roles include Nelson Stone in the TV series, Scarlet, and appearances in The Upshaws and The Day You Found Me. His voice talents extend to the music industry, backing icons like Celine Dion and John Legend and leading the praise band at the Crystal Cathedral. Growing up on the road with a public speaking father, Danny's early life was filled with travel and homeschooling experiences that shaped his passion for art and communication. Today, he continues to inspire through his performances as a speaker at various events, embodying the transformative power of creativity and imagination. I can't wait for you to hear what he has to share, so let's jump right in. Well, Danny Fazenfeld, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today. Uh, where in the world are you at the moment? Well, at the moment, I am sitting in my place in Los Angeles, California, right at the corner where I live is Los Angeles, Hollywood, and Beverly Hills, and those cities meet, and I'm right there in that little meeting point. Okay. Well, the last couple of times that we have uh, spent some time together uh, has been at the, the Beverly Hills Hotel when I fly into LA, and uh, so how far away is uh, that location from you? About a mile. About a mile? Oh, that's a great location. All right. Fantastic. Yeah. Well... Uh, I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for quite some time. I know that uh, we've talked about this, and I, I love interviewing interesting individuals who are doing fascinating things in their life and their career. And one of the things that I have just you know always wanted to peek behind the scenes in Hollywood, right? Like you know, people are getting gearing up for this weekend. We got the big Super Bowl. Uh, one of the things that people love is watching the Super Bowl ads. And you've had you know famous commercials that have played and aired during the Super Bowl. Uh, you're an actor, you're a voice actor, you're a singer, songwriter, you're a producer, living an American dream there in Hollywood. And your story and your journey kind of reminds me of one of my favorite Hollywood movies, which is La La Land. And I just, I love those two characters in that movie, how they've got this dream. They both come from different backgrounds and they're, they go out to Los Angeles and they've, they've got this idea of something that they want to accomplish. And it shows the, the, the story arc of dream, struggle, and victory. And I'm curious if you could just take a few minutes to maybe uh, go back down memory lane and think about the moment in time when you had this dream and you're like, you know what? I think I'm going to head to LA. This is what I want to do with my life. I want to craft a career. And can you take us all the way back to that moment and kind of walk us through maybe your story, your La La Land journey? 
Sure. Uh, you know, I grew up differently than a lot of kids. Uh, my father was a public speaker in the ideological arena. And uh, so I was born on the road traveling. I uh, moved every two weeks, 10 months out of the year for 16 years. And I was surrounded by people that were trying to affect change. Uh, they were trying to uh, make an impact uh, while they had an existence here on earth for what they believed to be true. And I was surrounded by musicians. I was surrounded by singers. I was surrounded by multimedia technicians and speakers. And yet I was a pretty shy kid. And I was very uh, limited in what I was allowed to view. Uh, my dad was rather strict in his ideological perspectives. And so uh, I did not see the inside of a movie theater until I was 17 years of age. Uh, growing up, I could only watch sports, news, and Disney, of all things, and then old movies that were monitored by my parents. And a lot of those movies, especially in the golden era of cinema, um, were musicals. And so I really fell in love with both music and acting and how they interacted with one another. And in the old studio days, uh, actors would be on contract and they would be required to take dance lessons and to take singing uh, lessons and to take acting lessons and even diction lessons. In fact, if anyone's ever seen the movie Singing in the Rain, which is one of the top three most influential movies in my life, um, that is primarily what that movie is about, is showcasing what old Hollywood was and then how they converted from non-talking pictures to talkies. Okay. Uh, and so being raised in the way that I was raised, I uh, also was homeschooled, um, so I spent a lot of time in my imagination, and spending that much time in my imagination without a lot of the distractions that most kid had, most kids had, and especially the way kids are distracted these days, um, that imagination was allowed to blossom and flourish and grow and expand. And so, um, when I was a senior in high school, it was the first year that I ever went to regular school. I tried out for a rock band and for musical theater in high school and got offered two music scholarships to colleges. I ended up going on a full mu music scholarship to a university in Virginia and traveled in singing groups and um, uh, did plays and musicals at the school. But I didn't study as a major either of those professions. Uh, I actually was a speech communications major. It was kind of a, a little bit of a cop-out because, uh, because of the way I was raised, even though I lived in my imagination and knew I wanted to do either music or acting or both, I hadn't been trained in those areas. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of fake it till you make it uh, my way through uh, my existence up to that point. And so I had a good instinct of how to be an actor and how to be a singer, but I hadn't been formally trained in either. And so I was in the middle of my third year of college and I was dating a girl and she said, you know, you grew up kind of in a vacuum, in a bubble, and uh, you weren't exposed to a lot of the world because of the way in which you grew up and you weren't exposed to a lot of opportunity. Why don't you leave college for a semester, come out to California, and try out the acting business and see where it goes. You can always go back to school. And I took a semester off against my parents' chagrin and came to uh, California and never went back. Uh, I signed with an agent uh, two months after I w uh, moved here. 
And uh, I'm still with that agent uh, in the commercial field, and that has been 30 years. That's uh, so he is my longest agent. Uh, and so a little peek into how I got into that. You know, uh, some people uh, come to come to Hollywood and kind of like winning the lottery ticket. They uh, are able to find massive success almost instantaneously. But that is a tiny, tiny, tiny fragment, just like winning the lottery of people that are able to do that. I had the long hard road. And that is the most common story, which is why a lot of people, you know, fall in love with some of these, these musicals. You talk of La La Land and the dream. Uh, there's a lot of broken dreams, which is why Hollywood is referred to as the land of broken dreams. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I applaud in people in coming into a business like this, which I think is one of the toughest businesses in the world, because uh, it's not based on merit. Um, is that at least they go for what they desire. And what a lot of people are doing in life is taking the safe path. Uh, they find something that allows them to make enough money to pay the bills. And then they live in an existence where they've never gone after what they truly desired. And a lot of people that come to Hollywood are those that are willing to recklessly abandon and leave and go against a lot of maybe uh, family or friends that are telling them that their, their dream is crazy. And they go after something that um, is really hard to attain, uh, but it takes an incredible amount of tenacity and faith to do it. And so my beginning really was pretty brutal. I lived in a one bedroom apartment with four people and two cats. I slept on the floor uh, with no blanket and no pillow. I had no money. I had a rusted out radiator and an ancient car. Uh, the home phone, because this is pre-cell phone and pre-pager, uh, the home phone uh, had been disconnected because the people that I moved in with had run up a high bill and had gotten the, the phone company had turned the phone off. So I would get up every day and walk several blocks to a pay phone and put coins in. And I would call in what we call an extras casting office, which is uh, if you see the background actors that work behind the primary actors in any production, uh, those people are generally employed by uh, what we call extras casting offices. And, and there are offices that specialize in providing background talent. And so I would call in every day because you're putting coins in a public phone you were calling against other people that had home phones that were dialing over and over again. So the chance of my phone call actually being answered by an extras casting director was slim to none. And so I would just do my best to try to get uh, extra work. And that's really where my journey began. And from there, um, you know, as time went by, I began to, uh, I got what we call my SAG card, which is the, the primary union out here, the Screen Actors Guild. And then I got more agents and then I was able to start going out for uh, primary actor work. And then the, the story kind of went up for a second and then came down for a long time. And then finally, my career really took off about uh, 13 years ago. So uh, we can get very specific about that, but that's kind of a general overview. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a typical story for uh, how people end up breaking into this business. I've got so many questions I, I can't wait to ask. But one of the things that you mentioned just a second ago is that maybe stunned me a little bit, which is, hey, it's, this isn't a merit-based economy here in Hollywood. I, I, can you, you know, double-click on that a little bit and give some insight on what you mean? Uh, that, that's my first one. Yeah, so um, 
perception is everything, right? That's a concept that is thrown around a lot. Uh, it's, it's memed. It's utilized in a lot of metaphysical communities. It's utilized in, in regular jargon. Perception is everything, meaning how you currently see is how you will experience. And so uh, the entertainment industry is built off of selling perception. So it's not concerned as much about what is the best. It's concerned primarily about whether or not people buy it. And so you can be really, really great at something as a singer, an actor, a cinematographer, any trade. But if you are not what is currently being bought or you're not perceived as being what is currently being bought, talent is thrown to the side for what is considered the current uh, primary uh, highest level of transaction. And so uh, you add into that the element, you know, pre-Harvey Weinstein, um, you had a drastic hierarchical system, which is still in existence, but it really was drastic when I entered the industry. And that hierarchical system starts with, on the film side, film and television side, you start with studios, and then you go down to uh, what we call showrunners or executive producers, then you have producers, then you have... Uh, the crews, then you have casting directors, then you have agents, then you have primary actors, then you have supporting actors, and then you have background actors. And that hierarchical system is very much treated as such, levels of importance. In the commercial side, you have brand, then brand manager, uh, then ad agency, then production company, then casting office, then agent slash manager, then primary actors, then background actors. And so that's kind of the descending scale of importance. Um, and so when you're looking at a system of merit, uh, um, just because, and you've probably seen this with some uh, very famous actors, just because you have been a big star and you've been a household name, uh, you can disappear just as quickly and not be seen again ever again, or maybe 10 or 20 or 30 years later, you have what's called a comeback. Mm -hmm. uh, those who've been able to maintain longevity in their careers are doing much more than being good at a craft. There's a whole business acumen side to it and a marketing ac uh, side to it that they have learned and they've learned how to maintain that. Um, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, it does. And, and how long did it take you to ascertain this kind of like behind the scenes power structure when you got out there? Uh, what did, did you get clued into it pretty quickly? Uh, what did it take some time? And, you know, I would imagine that it is not just a network of who you know and connections within Hollywood, but then that there's, you know, we've seen uh, actors or actresses who have maybe gotten on the wrong side of a hot political issue, and all of a sudden, they're, they're I mean, they're, they're just like uh, blacklisted, right? So you know, do you see that happen as well, where uh, there's a, a, a little bit of that that goes on? Like, you just got, you got to really be careful of kind of positions that you take? Yeah, I mean, so the first part of your question is how long to take. I've always been a pretty perceptive type of person, but I also was incredibly um, naive when I came into the business because I had grown up in such a radically sheltered way. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in a deeply introspective family that was very um, interpersonally relational. So sitting around the dinner table and doing things together was much more prioritized than 
uh, how many activities did you have in a week? Um, and so uh, coming into an environment uh, that was very much about um, uh, not being interpersonal and not being introspective and being so much more about marketing um, than uh, I, what I would refer to as genuine compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, it frightened me. Um, it hurt me. And I didn't understand at all why, what I would have considered to be was I thought it was mean, mm-hmm. you know, I thought it was deeply insensitive and it didn't care about what was important. And mm-hmm. I had all these value systems that were programmed into me that it did not seem to function within, at least not to the level at which I had been raised. And so it took me quite a while to to navigate my way through the business and learn how to participate with it, with it in a way that, that um, I could, I could kind of shed the emotional clothes of it at the end of the day. Uh, it, that took quite a while for me, I would say probably at least a decade. And it wasn't that I, I wasn't working or um, enjoying uh, elements of the business. It just took a while for me to really get reprogrammed within myself to be able to manage that better. Uh, the second part of your question was um, how some people have to really watch the things that they say. And it, it often has not not as much to do with art as much as making sure that you are what people are wanting to buy and sell. Mm-hmm. And I think that message or that operative, I should say, really intensified during COVID as it did um, in so many other arenas around the world. Um, I think it's always important that you watch what you say. And I think we had gotten to a place where, um, and, and unfortunately we still are in a place where we find it to be okay to say horrible things about other people. Um, I just think that we've justified it, um, in different ways currently. And we're not, we're now saying it's okay to speak about some people horribly, but not about other people horribly. And the people that maybe we're not speaking well of some people before are the ones that are now wreaking the havoc. But there's a, there's a universal law. What goes around comes around. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, for one, sit back and watch um, because I know that the ones that are condemning will be the ones that will be condemned. Mm-hmm. And that's how it always works. You, you have to make sure that you operate as best as you can. And we've all failed. Um, within love and compassion as much as you can, because um, fear uh, has to do with judgment and love has to do with freedom. Mm-hmm. And so love sets us free to love and uh, uh, judgment uh, sets us free. I'm sorry, leads us into fear and vice versa. Fear leads mm-hmm. us to judgment and love leads us to freedom. So um, I think that the business uh, art itself is always a reflection of the culture from which it is derived. And one of the things that we need to be really, really careful about is that we don't lose art because anytime you try to regulate art by its very nature, it ceases to exist. Art in its purest form is free expression. Mm-hmm. And so if you stifle freedom by trying to regulate it, you lose it entirely. And, and we need to be cautious of that while we're trying to discover ways in which we can be more loving to one another within art. Well, let's maybe fast forward or not, maybe not fast forward, but uh, 
moved to the point where you so you've been there in Hollywood for a little bit. You're discovering how everything works. You've had your first part of the movie of La La Land, the dream, struggle, victory. And then all of a sudden you come to a moment where you, you have your big break. Could you uh, talk about what you consider to be one of your biggest breaks in your career and what you discovered and learned around that and then how it, it set up the rest of your career and some of the, the, the subsequent things that have happened in your life because of that? Yeah. So, I mean, there's been several different moments. My first, what I, what I would have considered for myself at the time, because I was working so hard for a couple of years to book my first big national commercial. And when I finally did that, never forget this amazing casting director by the name of Susan Tyler. Um, she's no longer with us, but she was so excited for me. She called me on the phone and I booked a job for a big brand and I was working with a famous celebrity and she said, you're going to make so much money. Like you're going to make six figures on this. And for me as a guy that was waiting tables and barely able to pay his bills and eating ramen noodles, you know, uh, that, that was such a huge moment for me. Um, and I did not make six figures on that. It ran for three weeks and I made maybe $14,000 or something. But $14,000 was like a million to me at that point. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, I learned a lot about finances in that moment. There was an instinct in me that said, make that $14,000 your next zero. And no matter how much money you make after this, um, make that next chunk of money your next zero. And that's how I learned how to save and to, and to leverage capital. Um, so that was my first big lesson. Um, my, my really, some of my bigger breaks came in um, uh, later on in my 30s. Um, and I remember I had a number one movie in the world that I was starring in. It was an animation movie. I, I had two in the last couple of years. But last summer, I was starring in a movie uh, uh, that was on Netflix, and um, we were in the top 10 for a month, and number one in the world, and all these things. And I remember thinking how empty it felt. And, and, and of course, there was the accolades, there was the, there was the, I've worked really hard, and I've accomplished what I've wanted to accomplish, but I'm already on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And while I'm watching myself in this success that I had dreamed of for so many years, I realized that my primary thought was what's next. And I thought, you know, um, as, as joyous as it is to accomplish big things or great things, or, you know, uh, uh hit the finish line or achieve our goals. What's more important for me is to always be reminded uh, that who I am as a man and who I am showing up as in the world will always take precedence over what it is that I'm accomplishing. And so that was my second big lesson. It wasn't that I hadn't discovered that in increments before and other successes that I had achieved. But I, I think that I thought that once I had that, you know, massive global accolade with my name on it, that somehow, despite what others who have achieved it, uh, you know, like Jim Carrey has a quote, he says, I wish that everyone could become rich and famous so they could realize that 
it doesn't make them happy. Right. I've heard that. And, and I knew that philosophically, but I had to experience it to be centered. Mm-hmm. And once I got centered within that, then it made every single accomplishment since then that much more joyful because I could sit back and instead of it being this carrot that was dangling, it's like, no, I've already got the carrot. I, I've already reached that. Now, now I can take every small and medium and large success as, um, as something that is massive that I can be centered within and learn to retain the joy in, in each moment. So that was my, my next biggest lesson. Yeah. Well, those are two really big lessons. And I'd like to, um, talk about both of them for a second. And the first big lesson that you mentioned was regarding finances. And I remember a interview that Tim Ferriss had with Arnold Schwarzenegger, where Arnold Schwarzenegger was talking about his big breaks in Hollywood and how he found himself becoming uh, financially independent, which set him up differently from his peers. I'm sure you've probably heard heard of the the, the podcast that they did. It, it's iconic. Uh, I, I found that fascinating, and it's interesting. Like, I look at you as a actor there in Hollywood, and in many respects, you're like a solo entrepreneur. You're a business in and of itself, right? You run your own business, your own brand, your own marketing. And at a young age, you had enough wherewithal and smarts to be like, hey, I'm, I need to s- save this seed capital because I, I have no idea when the next job's coming in. And I think in um, – I, I see this a lot of times with young entrepreneurs or someone who is about ready to sign a really big deal, but like, all right, now I'm going to go treat myself. You know, I've made it. And sometimes that contract doesn't pay out. Sometimes the deal doesn't get closed and they've already spent the money before they cashed a check. Right. Uh, right. T- talk a little bit, if you can, just a- about the, how you manage the business of you, this, this early financial lesson and how you have then built on that to build security for yourself. Uh, it, it sounds like there's a, a lot of discipline. Um, p- people who you know have your insight, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, are able to build a long, successful career. People who didn't, right? They're probably like, oh, you know what? I've got to move back east. I got to move back home because I, I, I don't, I don't have any capital, right? So, it, it seems like this is super, super important. Yeah, I, I remember being in college, and everybody was picking a career path. And as I observed the career paths that they were talking about, some of them paid more monetarily than others. Um, I realized that most of the conversation centered around creating an income that was consistent, getting a house, which carried a mortgage, getting a car, then a second car, getting married, having kids, putting them through college, retiring and dying. And which is a noble achievement. And I applaud everyone who's ever accomplished that because that's no small feat. But for me, that was disinteresting. For me, what was more interesting was how soon can I buy my freedom? Mm-hmm. And for me, freedom meant I want enough capital that I don't have to worry about paying my bills. And anytime I want to travel or not work on a day, I have the freedom to choose that. I am not bound to my responsibilities. I can step away by choice. Mm-hmm. And I bought that before I was 30. Now, I didn't do that by buying a huge house or expensive cars. I did that by li- living a very monetarily limited existence. I chose simplicity. Um, but the things that were most important to me were the aforementioned. It was travel and being able to do what I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it. And I will be 51 in March, and I have never 
been bound to a day job. I have always lived an entrepreneurial lifestyle. When people talk about breaking into the entertainment industry, what I always tell them is what being an actor or a thespian really is, is it's being a commission-only, non-salaried car salesman every day. Uh, Every day you get up, you have zero income unless you create it. And yet the possibility of the acting lifestyle is that you can do one job that has a residual income that can pay more than many people's annual salaries. Mm -hmm. So uh, there there is the opportunity every day to basically wake up and win the lottery. But there's also the opportunity every day to wake up and not know where your rent's coming from. And so what I tell young actors when they when I coach with them is um, create at least four uh, uh, sources of income within the business. Because what a lot of people do is, which is what I started as, I didn't know any different when I was younger. I waited tables for eight and a half years as, you know, as a struggling actor in my 20s. Um, what I should have done is what I did in my 30s um, was... I built myself up as a commercial actor. Um, I've done, well, I mean, for probably the last 12 years, I've been one of the top commercial actors in the world. There was a period where I was number one. So I've done over 350 commercials, I've been spokesman for many brands, et cetera. Um, and so I built that up. And once that machine was oiled and I keep it oiled, um, then I moved on to voiceover. And once that machine was built up, and oiled over. Then I moved over into film and television. Once that machine is completely oiled and filled up, then you move on to the next arena. So I have uh, about six sources of income. And sometimes the commercial field is so lucrative that the others I'm just having to maintain. And then other times uh, the voiceover field is lucrative. And so I have to maintain the, the other machines. And so uh, what my job is on a daily basis, speaking of the entrepreneurship, is to make sure that through relationships, through marketing, and by showing up and doing the work, uh, I have my six sources of income oiled at all times. Mm -hmm. Um, And that really is the entrepreneurship of being a working actor. Well, it strikes me that you put... You, you orbited your life around first principles. You knew what the first principles were that were that mattered to you, and then you were able to build a life around it. I love the idea that you, as an entrepreneur, talk about multiple streams of income. That's something that I have coached people on for quite some time as well. Um, and you know, having the discipline, and I just I know that there's a lot of people who they idealize, uh, romanticize, if you will, uh, entrepreneurship. Yeah, but it takes a special type of person in terms of mentality uh, and discipline to be able to get up. And I've got a, a close friend of mine, and he says, Bob, you, to be an entrepreneur, you got to get up in the morning and chew glass every single day. He goes, it is tough. You know, you're going to get punched in the stomach. You're going to go through obstacle after obstacle. There's going to be long periods of time where you feel like, what in the world am I doing? And then you have your big break. Now, this is regardless of whether you're an entrepreneur in the restaurant industry, the you know a, a VC in Silicon Valley, and you're building a tech company. It, it, the the path 
pathway is the same. And here you are as an actor in Hollywood, and you're literally sharing with me the, the exact same pathway that I have heard so many of my classmates and friends talk about as they're building their companies or they're launching a new product. Um, so what are, what else did you learn during these times uh, when you when, when you were putting these first principles together uh, about the mindset? Because, I mean, you, you've got to wake up every single morning as you're chewing that glass and you're building your, your, this machine to have a proper mindset to be able to deal with all this. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a quote that The Rock um, has on the wall of his gyms, and it says simply this: "The mind leads, the body follows." Uh, Tony Robbins, the the great um, uh, motivational coach that all of us are probably aware of, um, he has cold plunge pools in his homes around the world, and the first thing he does when he gets up in the morning rolls out of bed, he jumps into ice cold water. And he's been doing that long before it became popular. And he said the reason, and I'm paraphrasing, that he has done that for many years is because he reminds his body every morning and he reminds his emotions every morning that they are under subjection to what he is going to program into them. Hmm. Uh, you don't do what you feel. You tell yourself what to feel. Emotions are a choice. And when we really understand that um, we are a byproduct of our thoughts and our words and our emotions, and that all of those can be shifted in a matter of days um, by reprogramming the subconscious mind, um, once you have shifted a mindset, uh, you can change anything. And so one of the things that exists within Iconoclast, those who have helped to mold and shape um, any industry, um, is, is a mindset that does not understand or will not allow itself to focus on the concept of failure. Failure does not exist within the minds of massively successful people. What they have is a vision or an end goal. And anything that comes is simply an obstruction that must be circumvented. It must be moved around or jumped over because they know where they're headed. Mm -hmm. And so that mindset, I think, was always within me. Um, I had to learn to overcome mental obstacles far more than I had to learn to overcome physical. Um, people will always say negative things. There will always be challenges. But uh, if you keep your mindset on where you're headed, mm -hmm. um, you will get there. Uh, you have to, of course, discipline your body. I work out and have my whole adult life five or six days a week. Do I do it because it's easy? No. Do I do it because I always want to do it? No, most days I don't. Um, but I do it because, because I feel better and I look better. And then that adds into the visual marketing of my industry. It is, it is a necessity. And so if, if I may delve into this for just one second to just yeah. expand a little bit on the mind, um, I could tell you a, a, a story uh, at some point in this podcast of how I arrived at this. But basically, um, th there is a book, I haven't read it, but there's a book uh, by Dr. Caroline Leaf, a, neuro a neurologist uh, called Who Switched Off My Brain? Uh, friends have told me about it. Uh, as a neurologist, she wanted to actually do MRI scans in the brain to see what would occur within the brain neurologically if someone practiced changing their words and their thoughts and how long it would take before the, before the structure of the brain began to shift. 
And most people in the metaphysical community would say that you can reprogram the subconscious mind in a matter of 30 to 60 days. And what she discovered on MRI scans is that it can be, it can be shifted in as little as four days. Um, that, that, that what is mostly going wrong with people that are not successful in any industry comes down to what they are regularly thinking within their cognitive minds. And what they are, what is regularly coming off of their their tongue with their speech, and if they would simply change what they said and what they thought on a daily basis as their primary commitment to themselves, most things would change in their life. And so we have a lot of people that are striving towards end goals, and they're having some success. But what really takes a person from good to excellent mm -hmm. is what they think and speak. So anytime I step into something new that I haven't done before within my industry or outside of my industry, or even things that I've done many times before, I am filled, filled often with what we refer to as fear or angst or a bit of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I discovered something about that, that that same energy that produces those feelings is the same energy that produces any other thing. I'll explain. So let's use Star Wars as a reference point. Okay. So in, you know, uh, the, the first Star Wars movie, Luke Skywalker doesn't know who he is. One day a drone is dropped off onto this remote desert planet and he tries to fix it and there's a message that is revealed and he doesn't know how to get it to work. So he takes it to the most alchemistically wise, powerful person that he currently knows, a man by the name of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And where does this man reside? In a cave. And so he shows it to him and he looks at the message and says, oh, the, the you know, our, our good side of the forest is in trouble and we must go take care of this. And they race back to the home only to find that Luke's uh, adoptive parents have been infiltrated by the empire and they, they have been wiped out and are no more. And so he travels with Obi-Wan throughout that movie and starts discovering the ways of the Force. And the Force occurs both within the light and the dark side of the Force. Uh, then in episode two, he is told within himself that he needs to train to become like these Jedis, those who have learned how to work with universal and natural laws and had been able in front of his eyes to do things that are considered miraculous, like move objects or uh, uh, encourage people to think thoughts that are not their own, right? Things of these nature. And so he goes to this remote planet where supposedly the greatest of all alchemists, the greatest Jedi, the trainer of the other Jedis lives. And he stumbles upon this little green guy who comes in the form of what would be unsuspecting tiny little green monster looking dude that lives in a crappy little tree house that's too small for Luke. He's uncomfortable. He's impatient. He's angry. And he blurts out these things out of his mouth. And it turns out this little green guy is the great Jedi teacher. And he begins training Luke. But what he is concerned about is his impatience. And at one point in his training, Luke starts levitating objects and even starts to raise the ship that is, you know, uh, 
crash landed into the swamp and can't fly anywhere. And then he loses focus and he's reprimanded by uh, Yoda for being impatient and losing focus. And he says to him, you need to face your deepest fear. So he sends him off into the woods with his lightsaber and he goes yet again into a cave and, and in another dimension, he encounters his deepest fear, which is Darth Vader. And he defeats him and cuts off his head in this illusion. And the helmet explodes, and inside of the helmet is his own face. And then, of course, he returns. He returns in Return of the Jedi, and he's mastered himself, and he now functions completely within uh, universal law, so he has alchemistic power, and he defeats the Empire. Now, the interesting thing through all of this story is the allegorical sense that you see in even scriptural understandings. This man mm -hmm. doesn't know who he is. He goes to the great teacher. Where does the teacher reside? Where all teachers are, because the most wise among us are not the ones writing books and standing on stages. No. They've discovered certain things within the carnal existence. The wisest among us are those who have learned to be still and know. Uh, what does the phrase say? Be still and know what? That I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Um, you'll never traverse past belief into a state of knowingness, which is the highest level of your existence, until you first learn to be still. And so then he leaves the cave with the teacher, and the greatest teacher of them all has spent hundreds of years being still. And then what gets in the student's way? Impatience and lack of focus. And the answer is to confront his fear, which was always himself. And once he does that, he leans into the stillness and masters his own emotions. Because what true alchemy is, is the mastery of oneself, which means the mastery of one's emotions. So the force is simply the energy of which you are comprised. When you die, your body disintegrates and the matter that you and I perceive one another to be disintegrates over time into dust from which you came. Mm -hmm. You are made of what everything else is made of and you are held together by sound, frequency, vibration. Those are interchangeable words in all ideological, spiritual, and metaphysical teaching. That sound is what holds you together. There's two things that you are made of. Sound and light. So when Jesus makes a reference to, you are the light of the world, don't hide your light under a bushel, it has a lot greater meaning than simply an ideological perspective. It's literally re referring to what, of what you are comprised, sound and light. And so when you are afraid, the simple answer is, it is all fear and anxiety is, and this is my quote, all fear and anxiety is, is excitement with a negative outlook. It's the same energy, but you're choosing to focus on what could go wrong instead of what is going to go right. Oh, I love that. And when you simply shift your perspective, I mean, you think about it, repentance in the New Testament literally translates to change one's mind, to be facing one direction and to turn and face the other. So if to turn one direction and face the other and to change one mind, is to literally change the course of your life. 
then you are being told that everything is within the mind and all it ever was is perception. So when you are afraid, begin speaking and thinking about everything good and change your perspective. Mm -hmm. And what seemed like a mountain will be removed. I love it. Words of wisdom right there. <laughs> there you go. And I, I am actually going to, I know you're not on Twitter, but I am going to tweet that quote. <laughs> I'm going to give you one? the one that you just wrote where it was the, anything that you, in time of stress, anxiety is just excitement with a negative outlook. Oh, all fear is that this is the quote. All fear and anxiety is, let's just say that all fear and anxiety is all that. Let's say this. All that fear and anxiety is, is excitement with a negative outlook. Got it. It's radical. It, it literally is this. This is what I, it literally is this. Let me get an object here. This, I, I was, te I was coaching um, someone the other day when I, I have a prop cigarette in here that I use for acting. That's a good thing to throw. Um, so I was walking with this voice that teaches me all these things inside of myself. Called the, I call it source. Some people call it the Holy Spirit, Christ Spirit, whatever. Mm -hmm. I was walking and this is what I was told. And this is what it said. It said, all systems of man, be it psychology, be it ideology, be it any scholastic system, any self-help program, anything, is residing within this concept. You want this outcome, but in order to have it, you must work on yourself or work on this. Right? Mm -hmm. You want this, but you got to work on this. And this is what the voice said to me. And it changed my life forever. You ready? Yeah. Just toss it out. It said, become so obsessed with what you desire, where you're headed, that you become it. Wherever you are going, if you want to be, I didn't want to say this on the podcast because I don't think it's for the world yet, but Knowledge, wisdom, understanding, virtue. Yeah. Where, the, where the universe, where God resides is virtue. Perfect love, perfect peace, perfect confidence, perfect joy, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was being tutored about was the voice was saying, I kept saying, well, okay, I can get to virtue by climbing there. But how do, is there a faster way? And the voice said, become so obsessed with virtue. It's already what you're made of because you're made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. You simply forgot who you were. So become obsessed with joy. Become obsessed with confidence. Keep your visions like a horse with blinders so much on whatever it is you desire that you awaken to it. Because the universe or God is what you're made of, and that's what's inside of you and around you. Mm -hmm. That's why Star Wars is called the Force, but the New Testament says, and we know this, that he is in all and through all. That's another mm -hmm. way of saying it. There's nothing before God. There's nothing after. So everything that is made is made of it. I love it. Awaken to it. And that, that changed my life forever. So the subconscious mind has an enormous amount of power over our actions. And we can get programmed by society. We can get programmed by those around us. And, and we don't, we're not even conscious of our subconscious beliefs that might be holding us back. Um, you know, one of my uh, favorite uh, verses is that, you know, there, there's power in the tongue. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, right? But there's power in our speech. There is, and, and that's what you're saying. There's power in the words that we speak to ourselves and to others. 
So walk me through a little bit of this self-discovery and some of the things that you've done to actually, you know, maybe reprogram some of your mind. I mean, I, I hear entrepreneurs all the time that will talk about, Tony Robbins talks a little bit about this as well, about how we have to have, you know, the right affirmations. You wake up in the morning and you're like, hey, you know what? You know, uh, I've heard of some people that will say, I, they, they tell themselves, I'm worthy. I'm worthy of success. I'm worthy of the the things that are, the good things that are going to happen to me. They have to remind themselves because somewhere along the line, they bought into, I'm not worthy of great things. I can't accomplish great things. Yet they reprogram that. And then all of a sudden, it's amazing where they start to see opportunity around them. They start to experience the world in a different way. People start to experience them differently. So it sounds like this is part of your journey as well. Yeah, you know, so I grew up being pro programmed with what we call Protestant ideology. Um, you know, you have, you've got Catholicism, which is the, the parent of Puritanism. And then from Puritanism, you have over 300 denominations uh, within what we call the Protestant uh, Christian Church. Now, where I currently reside within my perception, I'm, I, I am not a religious person by, by any means. But a lot of the programming of my upbringing uh, has retained within uh, my uh, subconscious and becomes part of my tutelage from this voice that has always existed. Some people call it the Christ spirit. Some people call it your intuition. Uh, some people call it your imagination or subconscious. Whatever term uh, your listeners uh, individually refer to this as, there's this kind of knowingness or this, this teacher within you that is always speaking if you listen. And that voice was something that I leaned into a lot when I was in my imagination as a child, and it's been with me since I was a kid. And I remember when I was 38, um, I was having a really rough go of it. And a lot of things were falling apart around me. And sometimes when that's happening, that's the universe or God, depending on how you look at that, giving you a moment to restructure things within your life because you're on the verge of something great. And a lot of people look at things falling apart as maybe I did something wrong or why does life suck or whatever, but usually valleys precede mountaintops and I'm old enough to be able to look back and see that. And so I was in a deep valley and I had been for a while and I couldn't seem to climb to the mountaintop. And I was taking uh, money where I had been responsible with it for years. And I was dating a girl that was wonderful, but she was very money conscious. And I felt a lot of pressure to uh, be at a level financially that I wasn't because I needed, I felt like inside myself, I needed to prove something to her. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was taking money and I was throwing it at high risk investments with smart businessmen, but uh, I was over trusting. I wasn't dotting my I's and, and crossing my T's like I normally would. And one business venture after another was failing before my eyes and I was watching my capital disintegrate. And I remember writing uh, a check, which for me uh, at this time would not be so great, but at that time was a substantial check. And I wrote this check for $11,000 and I got the phone call that my $11,000 was gone, that the Security Exchange Commission had closed down the investment that 600 people had invested in and called it a Ponzi scheme. And it wasn't just my money, but it was my girlfriend's money and my brother's money. <laughs> And all the returns we were supposed to be getting and all the work I had put into this thing. 
And I brought my dog out. I have a little Jack Russell named Johnny. And I was taking him for a walk. And I looked in the distance. And there was a moving truck on the street. And the movers were moving all of these nice things into an apartment. And I had just lost so much. And I'm watching all this stuff moved in. And I remember this sarcasm inside me. And I was like, oh, isn't that nice? All these nice things that these people have to move into this place. And as I got closer to the moving truck, I realized right about the time I got the phone call that I had lost all this money. The movers had tried to move a boat on a boat trailer off of the moving truck and had lost control of it and it careened down the street and it had run through the front of my Jeep. So I went over, exchanged insurance information, went back inside and told my girlfriend that we had lost all this money. We went and took my Jeep to uh, get dollar tacos. I parked on a street called the Brea, and anyone in L.A. knows what I'm talking about. I went inside, $13 of tacos later, we come out, and I parked at the wrong time of day, so my car had gotten towed. So we jump in an Uber, $450 to get it out of the lot. It was not a good day. And one day after another, after another, after another, several months of this type of thing, I was walking my dog one night, and I was so mad. I had what I call a David from the Old Testament. Those that are Jewish that are listening will be familiar with David as, as well as those who are maybe Protestant or non-religious at all. But there's this guy named David, and he wrote the Psalms. And he was the first king of Israel. And he was discovered as a shepherd, the 12th child of a, of a, of a farm, of a, of a, of a, yeah, of a farmer, of a rancher, I guess, in those days. And he uh, was a musician and a poet. And he would talk to this imaginary um, you know, being that he became familiar with inside of himself um, that he referred to as God. And so he would write songs and he would have this, this free expression. And I had always had that. And so I was talking to this vo same voice inside of me that I had experienced since I was a kid. And I literally flipped off the heavens with my middle finger. And I was like, what the F, you know, uh, how can all of these things be falling apart? I I've had this interaction with this with, with what I consider to be God or the universe inside me since I was a kid, this should not be happening. And this voice whispers in my right ear and it says, hey, you know that definition of faith that Paul wrote in the New Testament? I was like, yeah, the riddle. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet realized or unseen. What? And the voice whispers and says, there's no faith without hope. Hope is the substance. And I said, come again. And the voice says something from the Old Testament says, without vision, people perish, meaning you literally die without a purpose. Mm -hmm. And then it says to me, hope deferred makes the heart sick, meaning you literally physically die when you lose hope. Your heart will take that as a message and it will literally turn on itself. And so as I'm walking back to my apartment, all of these scriptures, one of which you mentioned, which comes from the book of James, start flying through my head. Paul wrote, don't be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the continual changing or renewing thereof of your mind. And in Greek, that's the subconscious or imagination. Then it says to me, life and death is in the tongue. James wrote that in James 1. He says, literally, the tongue is the rudder of a ship, and wherever you point it, 
that it steers the entire ship and sets the course of your life. Then you look into Genesis and it says that all things that were created according to that belief system were created by the spoken word. And then it says in Proverbs, whatever you think in your heart, so you become. And so I had this mathematical equation being put together in my mind as I'm being walked back to my apartment. And I said to this voice, I said, great, what do I do with this? And the voice said, do you remember when you were a child, speaking of La La Land, which is where we started, do you remember that your imagination was so vast that you could see an old movie or watch something like Superman? And because you were poor, your mom didn't go out and buy you a cape, but I remember her literally clothes pinning a towel to my shoulders. And I remember running out on a windy day and running down hills and jumping. And I kid you not, I was flying for at least four or five feet, right? But as a kid, I was Superman because I believed it. Some kids literally jump off roofs into pools. I said, great, what do I do with that? Well, I had never heard of Bob Proctor or Wayne Dyer or Louise Hay. I'd never listened to Tony Robbins. So none of those could be flooded into my mind with their perspectives. But this voice said to me, begin walking around your apartment, speaking out what you want as if it's already happened. Just do that. I said, well, the only thing that I can think that I really want right now is I want to book more commercials. And so I started walking around my apartment all day long saying, I am the number one commercial actor in the world. Everywhere I go, everyone hires me. I thought it. I spoke it. I spoke it when I took a shower. I spoke it when I was in my car. I spoke it in my mind at auditions. I spoke it about the job when I left the audition. I did that all day long. Now, some people work out for 30 minutes to an hour, maybe. Some people are on their phones for 30 minutes to an hour at the gym, but some people actually work out. Uh, But I was doing it 24 hours a day. And within two weeks, I booked a job for a company called Ford. And it was two weeks after that, I was on a plane to Detroit, Michigan, to be the spokesman for a company. And the dollar figure they were paying me for that trip was $11,000, which was exactly what I just lost. Wow. Now, the stories get radical from there, but the general overview is in the next year, I did 20 spots, 20 commercials, and I did one that went viral globally for a company called Nordnet Bank. Shot it in Sweden and it became a sensation. So I was on the front page of Ad Week for four days. And then Good Morning America did a story about me in the spot. Anna Kedrick and Ving Rames for uh, Arby's and Newcastle Ale. So I was the lead in. They talked about their spots and then I was the close. And both Ad Week and Good Morning America titled, uh, respectively, um, their, their segments truth and advertising. And what I had always been driven for since I was a kid is the truth. Mm-hmm. What is true? We've made truth this relative thing. And what I say to my students is, yes, the perception of truth is relative, but try telling universal and natural laws that truth is relative. They don't care. You can try to defy gravity, but gravity will win every single time. Mm-hmm. Until you start learning to participate with higher universal laws, such as aerodynamics. Mm-hmm. But there are laws that we don't talk about, such as the law of expectation. Yeshua, who became Jesus in modern language, made a statement in the New Testament. He said, ask, expecting though it already is, and it will be, 
he's giving you a clue into a universal law that functions as consistently as gravity, and that's the law of expectation. There's the law of reciprocity. There's the law of return. We, we're told we have five senses, yet we talk of a sixth sense called intuition. And so what I've discovered for myself is that the world is purposely dumbed down so that we live in the cognitive, we function in distraction. And when you learn to reside within the imagination, that's where the creative forces of the creative force of the multiverses resides. And you tap into that. That's where all innovation, that's where all ideas, that's where all successful uh, business acumen comes from. It resides within the imagination. And the answer is we must learn to be still and know. When we are still, we can, we can hear the voice that has been speaking to us all along. But if we're always busy, that hustle will create a certain level of success. But massive success comes from learning to be still and then construct your words and thoughts so that on a daily basis, you are designing your outcome. And the reason why this works, Bob, is because there's a law called the law of attraction. Mm-hmm. You attract unto yourself the energy in which you currently reside. So if you're afraid or you're angry or you're bitter or you're resentful, you will attract people like that and experiences that will cause you to stay within that. The only way you shift the outcome of your life, if you want a positive outcome, is you must learn to reside within gratitude and joy. Those vibrations or energies or frequencies, which can be broken down in a, another segment, are, are the position of su- success. And, and what they really are, and, you know, like, you, you didn't ask me this question, but I'm going to give you this answer anyway. People ask me all the time, why, when you have such good business sense and ability to speak to people or whatever, why are you an actor? And I say this. Well, I'm an actor and a singer, but I say this. I, I am an actor and a singer by trade, but I am a creator by necessity. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, I happen to stumble into the mediums of acting and music. They're something that I understand. They are, they are, they are means to be creative. But being a good business person is a creator. Any, any, any trade within the world, you're baking cakes, you are a creator. You're a good chef, you're a creator. That is the creative energy by which you are designed coming into play with a skill set. That's all it is. And I think we have a tendency to, to uh, um, only think of or primarily think of people in the entertainment industry as being creatives. But cre- be creativity resides within every trade. It's amazing. Yeah, being a creative and solving problems. And you know, as you're sharing you know, this discovery that you had, and as you're pe- putting all these pieces of the puzzle together, um, you know, it reminds me of the, the, the famous quote about Steve Jobs, who was an amazing creator. And uh, his compa- uh, compatriots and peers around him uh, said that he had a reality distortion field because of how powerful his mind was and how he was able to have a vision of the future for himself and for his company and for what he wanted to do. And no obstacle, no uh, dismissive point of view for you know somebody around him would get him 
off track and he just he was able to have this reality distortion field and he manifested what he needed to have done for both uh disney and all the various projects or i guess and then also apple uh when he was there and so and it's uh absolutely uh amazing so let's unpack a little bit so you have this you go from this moment of time where the it feels like everything in the world is going against you. You have this conversation with yourself about how you're going to change your mental point of view and how you're going to start seeing the world through a different lens and viewing things differently, speaking to yourself differently. Uh, you have an enormous amount of success coming out of that. Now, uh, in the the lead up in the show notes I've I've shared with people a little bit of of your background but I mean you've worked with iconic musicians you've had incredible success and in how so t- connect the dots to then how all of a sudden all of these just great amazing career breaks start happening for you and uh, some of the stories surrounding those because like as you said you've you've worked on projects for Netflix number one uh, movie in the world. Um, a number one a commercial, and, and it, it, I'd love to understand a little bit at some point the differences between working on projects in, in the movie and film versus the commercial, because I know there's sort of two different genres, but um, can't wait to hear uh, some of these stories. Well, uh, you know, I had had some beautiful experiences even before that massive breakthrough, but once that pivotal shift occurred in my perception and became um uh, you know a daily discipline mm-hmm. uh, changing the the way i thought and spoke um then things really like a rocket ship took off um and i went from booking you know four commercials five commercials in a year to averaging 20 um uh then i started having beautiful experiences where you know, certain things in, in film and television opened up. I got to work with Viola Davis on a, on a show. I got to work with Ed Asner and Tom Sizemore on a, on a, on a show. I got to, um, you know, uh, uh, do a lot of really fun and interesting things. I think, I think my favorite uh, movie that I've been able to work on in the animation side in the last couple of years for sure was Chicken Hair and the Hamster of Darkness. Um, and, uh, and, and what I find fun about, what I find fun about voicing things, you know, comedy and musicals are at the forefront of what I love doing more than anything. But what's fun about animation is it's one of the few arenas where you can be as broad as you want to be. And it's also a fascinating arena in the sense that nothing has been animated un- until you voice it. Really? So it off of what you design in your head. I thought it was the other way around. I thought that they, really, so you do the voice first and then uh, an artist comes in afterwards and creates the picture based on what they're hearing. That is amazing. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a number of different genres within animation. So if you're... If you're buying something from overseas and you're revoicing it in a different language, we call that dubbing. Okay. Um, then, of course, you're looking at a visual and you're trying to place a different language, in this case English, over what has already been drawn for another language. Okay. But when you're looking at like movies for Disney or Pixar or 
um, you know, shows for Nickelodeon or stuff for DreamWorks, or in this case, uh, the company for companies for Chicken Wave were in Wave, in Wave created and, and animated, and then you've got Lionsgate and Sony and Netflix that got behind it. Um, but the way in which they are primarily made is like that. They, you, you go in, you have one or two or three voice directors. In this case, there were two. Uh, and they will tell you, okay, this is kind of what's taking place, and here's here's what's going on in the story. Go ahead and give us what you got, and then you design it, and they may come and say, okay, give me three reads on this line. Okay, love what you did there. Uh, maybe laugh at this point and just say it again like that. Okay, great, and moving on to the next thing. And then when you see the movie, it's fascinating because what ends up happening with me, because my background is in comedy and musicals, um, comedy is something that I enjoy more than anything else, I do a lot of what we call ad-libbing. And ad-libbing is where you have a structure, but then you make up your own material within it. Mm -hmm. uh, Judd Apatow, who is a phenomenal comedic director, um, he has a lot of this type of structure, as does, as does even... even um, uh, well, there's a number of other directors that function like that. Will Ferrell functions a lot of them in this process too, um, where, you know, or if you've ever seen Curb Your Enthusiasm, Curb Your Enthusiasm is literally scenarios and entirely improv right? And so when I come into an animation project or I come into a commercial or TV film project, no matter what it is, I'm constantly thinking of uh, what, what can be improv here that will make this uh, more interesting and more funny. And then sometimes you get directors or writers that are very, especially with drama, that are very hardcore stuck to where what they've written. And so you respect that and you stay within the lines. But but especially with animation, there's always room to improv. And so a lot of my improvs have been made into finished products and animation movies. That's awesome. And that's a blast to watch. But also what's fascinating with chicken hair is, and I teach this in my voiceover classes, is um, bringing as much range and color as you can to voices. For instance, like um, stereotypical bad guys might be, have a tendency to be really mean and down in their lower register. And so I'm a bad guy, right? But there are plenty of bad guys that don't talk in that register. And so when you're doing a, when I'm doing a character, I try to travel through as much of the registers as possible. For instance, this one was aristocratic and condescending and a royal a, a, a person of royalty that was trying to steal the throne. And so I did things like <laughs> Why would you do something like that? I made him a bit more sadistic and evil. Okay. So his voice kind of floats around because he kind of floats himself. <laughs> mm. Right? And yeah. then that gives animators the opportunity or the freedom to animate in different ways. Because if someone's floating around, they might draw him a little more trotsy or dancing or moving his arms more. Whereas if he was just evil, they might just have him leaning in and being one note all the time. And I, I think it just makes characters more interesting. And that's why I love it so much. Tell me a, a little bit about the process of recording that. I mean, so we've seen the movies, right? Maybe uh, uh, the, the, the sitcom uh, Entourage, right? Where you're on a set and you've got people, that, the actors that are interacting with each other. Uh, what is it like when you're doing an animation? Are you in the studio together and you're working off of each other in real time? So you're, you're able able to see maybe some of the facial expressions. So uh, 
even though you and I are doing this over video, as you were sharing both of those voice animations, you had very different body language and look. So if I was kind of um, working with you in a studio, I would be able to kind of work off of that. Is that what's going on in a studio? No. To, no. Really? So you're literally by yourself. You are by yourself. So there's there's. Why is that? Because of sound. So imagine if you and I were sitting there talking on your singular microphone. Yeah. Um, it's not that sound wouldn't work, but you'd be close up to it. And then my recording would sound a little more distant. If I made a noise in the background by scooting my chair, which I've done a few times on my end, mm -hmm. you know, on your end, it could screw up your take because you don't want, you need clean sound. So you record the actors individually for the principal acting. And then... Say, say my character's walking through the forest and you hear a bu bunch of people in the forest. That's what's called Walla. Um, they have what's called loop groups that handle most of that. Okay. Uh, and what they will do is they'll bring in a group of people and they'll place them on a bunch of mics, kind of like a choir. Mm -hmm. And then they will all improv based upon the needs of that scene for all of the background acting. So if you watch like maybe Beauty and the Beast and Belle is walking through the town, you have individual actors that are singing and all of that stuff has been recorded and by themselves. But then you have crowd sound of all of the ambient noise that's going on and that's recorded with groups of actors. Okay. That's pretty much the only time you're together. Wow. So you literally walk into a studio, you've got your lines, only your lines. You have to kind of know what's going on in the scene and that, but you're, you're by yourself just delivering your one singular line and you don't see any of this until the very end and they mash all of it together. You have to make it all up in your mind, but it's, 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 uh, it's, a it's, it's, uh, for those of us that are comfortable living within our imagination you know, it's a it's a beautiful playground because there's not someone telling you you're doing something wrong uh, and you're not having to necessarily react off of someone else based upon what they give you as an actor. Mm -hmm. So you get to completely freely express yourself. And that's the beauty of it. Now, for those people that are really only good at dialoguing by responding to someone else's dialogue. That's a major challenge. And that's part of what I teach in some of my classes is how, how to, to get connected with your voice but, and how to utilize the voice, but also how to um, jump into that creative space. And in our school, we call it getting out of the room. And what basically that means is stop being outside of yourself, looking down and analyzing yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, the four deepest fears in humanity are fear of death, fear of rejection, fear of failure, and fear of public speaking. And I think fear of public speaking is connected to some of those other fears. Sharks and snakes didn't make the list, huh? <laughs> my list for sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's definitely on my list. But you know, go ahead. I interrupted you. Finish the statement. No, that, that, that was it. Okay. Um, so you, you've done movies. And uh, those types and where you're interacting with somebody on a set, on a stage, right? You've done the voice acting where you're 
imagining this all by yourself with a microphone in front of you. Maybe you've got, I guess, a, a director, somebody in your in the earpiece saying, hey, Danny, give me, you know, another take on that with this, right? There maybe a, along the line, giving some, uh, some ideas. But then you also, I would imagine that shooting a commercial is very different, right? Now you're, you have to consider different things about the brand and what, what they're trying to convey. Do you, Talk a little bit, because I don't think you've shared too much uh, so far on the commercial side of the house. I'd like to learn a little bit about that and how it might be similar or different. And then of those three, is there one that you really find you're like, this is my favorite and here's why? Yeah. So um, on the, well, I'll just go, I'll just go one by one. So since we started touching on voiceover, on the voice voiceover side, You've got like people will write me all the time and they'll be like, hey, my daughter wants to get in voiceover. Uh, can you help her? And it's like, OK. So I very kindly always respond. What kind of voiceover? And most people don't uh, understand what that means. Mm-hmm. In voiceover, you've got podcasts. That's a segment of voiceover. Okay. You've got live announce, which would be, you know, the people that are you know, announcing people at award ceremonies and that sort of thing. You've got promos and trailers. So, you know, something that's promoting a TV show or a film or trailer voices. Uh, Don LaFontaine was a guy that, in a world, you know, that really made that voice for uh, 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 promoting film such a big deal. You've got narration. When you watch TV shows, there's a lot of shows, especially docu-series or his, history channel sorts of stuff that are that are narrated. That's a technique. Uh, you've got uh, nature. I just did um, one for, you know, there are so many things, the David Attenborough type of approach. And there he was, you know, that you that some people do. Yeah. Um, and then there is uh, radio commercials, television commercials, animation. Then there's dubbing. I mean, these are just genres within one sector of of the business called voiceover. Then when you jump over into commercials, uh, you've got um, regional and local and national. And then every type of thing from comedy to drama to spokesperson to best friend to lead to. um, There's just a lot of different types of things when we're dealing with commercial acting. And the process of commercial acting is... You get an agent, they send out your materials to a casting office that has posted a list of specs, looking for a man 30 to 45, able to do comedy, nice voice, brunette hair, looking for Caucasians, African-Americans, all ethnicities, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so agents submit pictures. Uh, These days it's digital. In the old days it was, you know, actual pictures they had to mail every day. Uh, And then you hopefully get an audition. And if you get an audition, now it comes through services that you have to subscribe to. And you you have to do most of the time what's called a self-tape. Pre-COVID, we would go in person to casting offices. They would explain to you what they were looking for, and then you would go in the room, and someone would video and edit it and send it off to the director in, in the uh, ad agency. These days, about 80 to 90% of that is done on our own, what's called a self-tape. So we have our own lights. We have our own cameras. 
Uh, we have to do our own editing, and then we submit it through these services online to casting directors to be sent to the director and the ad agency to be considered. From there, the director and the ad agency watches what has been sent, and they create what's called their selects for a callback. Okay. All right, we've whittled it down. These are the people we'd like to watch on Zoom or come in person to watch in the casting office. And then they, if you get that callback, you go to the callback. At the callback, they work with you on what you've done in the initial edition. And if they uh, like what they see, you get a call from your agent that you got put on what's called an avail. Mm-hmm. And the avail means, hey, and we're going to take him or her and a few other people. and We're going to present them to the brand. And if the brand picks one of them, we need to know that they're available to shoot on these days. And so you say yes, and if you say yes, then you're supposed to do it, and then you wait, and they 99.9% of the time never tell you one way or another, so you have other clients that are asking and other auditions and other opportunities that you're having to juggle with because 99.9% of the time, they never take the time to let you know that you were released from the avail. Or you book it. Yeah. And if you book it, then you show up and you do the job. Now, when you show up for the job, Usually there's a wardrobe on an assigned day before that where you go and try on a bunch of clothes and they present that to the brand and the director and the ad agency and they make their decisions for the final day. On the day of shooting, you get a, you get notified by a production coordinator by email with what's called a call sheet. And a call sheet lists everything from what the local hospital is to who what the production team is, the name of the ad agency, the name of the ad agents a list of everybody in the crew, every actor down to the background actors, to the production assistants, uh, from the highest to lowest of the totem pole. And you get a call time. Everyone's got a call time. And so you follow that call time. You confirm with that call sheet. You tell the production coordinator by email that you'll be there. You show up. And on set, um, the person that greets you is always what's called the second AD. And the second AD reports to the first AD who, who reports to the director. And that's just to make sure that everyone is there. And then on set, if you don't have lines, you are taken to wardrobe and then you're taken to makeup and then you wait to be brought to set and then you do whatever the first and second AD and director tell you to do. And that's pretty much what it's like to be in a commercial. And what's going on on that set is they have what's called Video Village. And Video Village is sometimes a tent that's set off to the side. Sometimes it's just a set of chairs. But that's where the ad agency agents that are responsible for that commercial, uh, the the producers of that commercial, and usually uh, what's called the client, one or two or three people from the brand that are, uh, uh, are buying this whole thing, are sitting and they're watching and they're conferring. And it's, it's amazing that commercials even get made because there's so many opinions that uh, everything that's done on that set has to travel through before it actually gets put on air. Yeah. Uh, but the final say is always the client. And so everyone's trying to please the client. The production team is trying to, trying to please the ad agency. And talent is trying to please uh, the director who's trying to please all of them. That's the commercial. Uh, and then... In, in the business, the way in which those things are aired, you know, um, in, in the old days when I started, everything for the most part on TV commercialized was what we call a union. Uh, so they were done under the Screen Actors Guild or the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, primarily SAG. Um, and so the way in which media was bought 
was you would get your money for the day that you worked, and then you would wait to see if you were cut out of that commercial or if it aired or not. And then depending on how it aired, they would, would inform you as it's airing, and then they pay you a residual check based upon how they're buying media time. These wow. days, about 70 to 85% of every commercial on TV is non-union, which means they buy you out annually or biannually for a very low sum, and very few people are making money in the industry anymore doing it. Um, so it's radically changed the, uh, the financial upside for you to do commercials, right? So has that changed you the way you look at this and the way you invest oh, your yeah. time? Like, oh, like, you know what? looks at it because uh, in the old days, meaning just 15 years ago, um, you um, commercials primarily ran what we call national network, which were ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox. And because they only ran on those networks, if they ran what we call wild spot, which is running in Chicago or LA or New York, you would get a sum for every 13 weeks that they were running in that region. It was a couple grand. But where you really made the money was when they sponsored a TV show. Well, since everyone was watching network television, brands would sponsor everything. Tonight brought to you by Chevrolet, right? And so that spot runs sponsoring shows. It's called Class A Network Usage. You would get a check for every airing. And that really adds up. So if it's running 50 times a day, you are making really good money. So the average minimum that you used to make on a national spot was around 40 grand. These days, they're running them for a year, and most people are making $2,500. Oh, my goodness. So you see the difference. Yeah. 40, 40 grand to 200 grand a year that people were making on spots. Now people are making about 3000 a year. So let me ask you, how much of that is because this is that you said a second ago, they're not doing this through the union. How much of it is because of that versus the watching and television habits of America at large, right? Where people are now, where there's so much more is on streaming and all these other devices. Is it, so is it both or is there one that's a bigger player than the other? Well, I mean, I could give you a whole history on it, but the, the, the quicker answer is, is that technology shifts everything. Innovation shifts everything. And one of the problems with as beautiful and wonderful as, as in, in needed as unions and guilds are for, for, for the working class, mm-hmm. um, it, uh, most of them often shoot themselves in the foot because they don't keep up contractually with technology. Technology moves faster than contractual negotiation. And so um, the union, our union was, was, and I think still is, operating in what I call the, the Lawrence Welk uh, period of time, where they were hoping that things would stay the same and they weren't moving quickly enough to keep up with innovation. So they did not negotiate themselves well into the ever-changing innovation. But I'm also of the belief that um, no matter what, innovation has shifted so fast over the last 15 years and still is. Um, I, don't, I don't think that there's any way to ever catch up with the expansion of, of it. And so once cable television went from a couple ne- networks like HBO and um, MTV and overnight became like 400 cable networks, it was impossible to take the old structure of residual income and negotiate into that. And then you got streaming services and YouTube and YouTube is actually the largest network in the world. As far as television is concerned, Mm -hmm. we're treating CBS, ABC, NBC and Fox as if they are. And really YouTube, you can get 50 million to hundred million viewers on a video. um, And that individual can monetize it. 
Whereas you're getting paid uh, a sum to work for a network who is only allowing people to view it on their network. And so it, it's really primarily an innovation and technology issue more than anything else. Speaking of that, we heard a lot of people inside and outside the industry talking about this rapid technological uh, advancement, uh, viewing habits changing, uh, the, the, the streaming wars. And we had a little bit of uh, a brouhaha on the, the Writers Guild, if I'm not mistaken, right? They had a big strike and there was a lot of people talking about it. There were uh, people like Professor Scott Galloway out of NYU who was like, man, I think these guys are really shooting themselves in the foot. You used that term a second ago. Uh, give me your insight on what happened there. Net-net, uh, was that was it good? Was it bad? Uh, how has the industry changed because of that strike? Well, I was here for the strike 20 years ago. And the strike 20 years ago that occurred with commercials was such a disaster that I think it's primarily why um, very few people uh, make money in commercials anymore. Because, because I'm of the belief that the union either sold us down the river or uh, uh, just did not negotiate uh, with any level of wisdom um, as they should have. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the primary thing that was going 20 years ago was that cable television was expanding rapidly. We didn't even have streaming services or internet really at that point. Um, but brand managers and brands were coming to ad agencies saying, and I know because I've talked to a lot of creative directors about it, and they were saying, hey, um, why aren't you doing commercials for us? And they're like, well, we're on a, you know, the, the actors are on a strike. And brands told creative directors, we'll figure it out. And so what brands started doing was going out of the country into Canada and overseas, and then trying to keep production here. They went into Atlanta and Louisiana and North Carolina. They went to Vancouver and Toronto as well. Um, and what they discovered was that in what we call right to work states, meaning um, states that that did not have the same laws that, that uh, unions uh, could have requirements within um, right to work was you have to hire anybody within a union or, or not. Right. So what they discovered was that there were really good actors and really good crews that were not unioned. Uh, and that's made up that word unions. Uh, they were not part of unions. And, uh, and so where a lot of this production that move to those states came from was from that strike from 20 years ago. Um, and then a lot of those states started throwing tax incentives and they mm -hmm. were going, wait a second, it's super expensive to shoot in California. We've got to get production done and we're going there. We're finding that people are nicer. Uh, we don't have to get as many permits. It's a lot cheaper and we can just fly our crews in and we're still saving money. Saving a lot of money. So we drew a lot of production out of California, which affected, you know, every time you have a strike, it's not just the artists that are out of work. You're affecting the economy in the entire state drastically. Every coffee shop, every sandwich shop, I mean, everything, dry cleaning, Uber, I mean, it, it impacts every single person. Yeah. So this last strike, I can't speak to the writer's strike. Um, I will say that one of the things that has saddened me, and, I, and I've seen it happen a couple of times, is that I want my writer friends to get everything and more that they ask for, but um, I wish that they didn't go right back to work every time they get 
what they bargained for, but they would stand in genuine solidarity and not go back to work until actors were able to as well. Because it lessens our leveraging power and because of the timing of our contracts, ours always comes up behind them. Mm -hmm. um, but having said that, the act, the, the well, some of the things that I felt that were being um, bargained for on behalf of uh, Screen Actors Guild were were necessary arguments, such as like AI or um, some of the audition requirements that actors were placed into was a runaway train. I mean, just some of the things that we're having to do as you know, being audio engineers and technical engineers and video editors and and do this thing three ways and do a close up and then a three quarter and then a full body all of these things that 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 we've been having to do that used to be done for us mm -hmm. have made our job that much more difficult i understood why they were arguing for it mm -hmm. but um i also thought it was kind of a be very cautious here i i don't want to say it was a pointless strike but i didn't fit, feel that the strike was going to be as beneficial as they were hoping for. And I don't think it was, which is what I predicted by a long shot. Um, I, I think that, and I'm treading very carefully here, but I think that innovation is probably going to win majorly over um, this union. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, uh, those who position themselves wisely um, with, without, um, I think people need to be very cautious to position themselves wisely as a business person within this industry long before they think in terms of a union or a guild protecting them, because I don't think it has, and I don't think it will moving forward. Very well said. And I, think that like so as you are very artfully and intentionally analyzing your career field and your prospects and where to use uh, Wayne Gretzky's famous quote you know I don't skate to where the puck is I skate to where it's going you're looking at where are these zones of opportunity how are things changing how do I position myself for the future and I, every single CEO or business leader that I chat with is doing the exact same thing in their career field and in their industry saying, my goodness, things are rapidly changing faster than any time in my life. And how do I position myself for success over the next couple of years, which it, it, it's hard for everybody. So specifically speaking it, for your industry and career field, where do you see those zones of opportunity uh, moving for you. I mean, you, you talked a little bit about uh, YouTube. You've talked about how uh, commercials and, you know, you used to be able to make X and now it's drastically reduced. So where do you see yourself kind of those zones of where, I mean, there's massive opportunity here. I need to prepare myself for this. Yeah. So I think there's like a twofold answer to that. One is um, personally, I have done well in positioning myself as a person who is a work for hire. So I have that within six arenas. Um, I've oiled the machines. People are aware of who I am. Um, I think I have shown up and done good work. And I think people are pleased with me as a whole. I'm sure there's some haters out there. I can't please everybody. But as far as being an artist, I think 
I think I, I do good work and I, and I show up every time. Um, but, uh, I have been looking at how I can design my life in a way in which I'm making more of the, the decisions, because when you are an actor and you're doing commercials, you are speaking on behalf of a brand and promoting what they're wanting to sell. Mm -hmm. You are doing film and television or voiceover, um, whether that's animation or commercial, uh, whether that's uh, any genre of comedy, musical, drama, what, what have you. You are still speaking someone else's words. Um, you are delivering their worldview to the listeners. Um, and you're never in the driver's seat. And I think the the positioning that I am moving more towards um, for myself is how I can be more in the driver's seat with what comes off of my tongue, mm -hmm. meaning what what I am speaking. Um, I'm becoming less and less interested in delivering a lot of the things that um, I mean. There are people that are writing beautiful stuff artistically. Mm -hmm. But outside of the artistic approach, you're still delivering worldviews um, that those writers are writing. And some mm -hmm. of them are great, and some of them maybe aren't so great. Mm -hmm. uh, but as an actor, it's your job to, to speak those words. And so I'm much more interested in, uh, at this stage of my life and what it is that I'm saying for those to hear. So I'm, I'm, I'm crafting that part of my life a bit differently. Um, and then I would maybe steal a little bit from a guy who is the most successful guy on YouTube. I don't know if you've studied a guy named Mr. Beast. Uh, absolutely. My kids watch him on a daily basis. <laughs> and he's a really simple, sweet guy out of North Carolina who fell in love uh, with YouTube when he was a teenager and, and tripped on himself over and over and over again trying to uh, make YouTube videos until he figured out the formula and he's never stopped leaning into the formula, which is why he's so successful. And I personally love him because I love what he does with his money. Mm -hmm. uh, he really takes care of people around him. He's not so interested in accumulating capital for himself as much as he is finding a way to, to give it to others and to find a way to be useful. And I hope he stays on that trajectory. That's fascinating. But he, I was watching him in a conversation uh, in a business forum and he said, um, and of course, I'm paraphrasing, I'm quoting him, but he said, he said, really, the only primary reason, as far as I can see it, that the, the major networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox, are really still around. Now, this is his opinion, and, and like I said, I'm paraphrasing, but he said it's because um, they have lucrative sports contracts. And he said, the minute um, someone creates a streaming service and reallocates all of those sports contracts to having a for purchase uh, sports network. If you remove those lucrative NFL contracts, et cetera, from the networks, he said, I really think it's going to be difficult for those networks to, to, to maintain themselves mm -hmm. uh, because he said, everything is moving towards YouTube as it is. And, and it's primarily the sports contracts that are keeping those contracts, keeping those networks, um, in the positions that they are. Now, that's his opinion, I, but when I sit back and look at it, there's a lot of sense to that. And so I think it's really smart for people, no matter what industry they are in, to find a way to have a voice um, 
even if it's an uncomfortable arena for them to find a way to market themselves well within social media. Uh, I was late to the game and uh, I did not monetize myself. I've got a friend who's a, who's become a really successful comic overnight. His name is Matt Reif. And I remember sitting across from him, you know, I was sitting across from him a couple of years ago and, and we're not close or anything like, I call him a friend, like we're an acquaintance. We follow each other on social media and we've, we've had dinner together once, but I remember sitting across from a number of years ago and really pretty, you know, beautiful, handsome guy, sweet dates, dates, really beautiful women. I remember sitting there and he invited me to a comedy, a comedy show at a, at a comedy store. I think he was there at the laugh factory. And I was like, I didn't know who he was at the time. And he was still not a name. And I was like, yeah, right. There's no way this guy's that handsome and he's also going to be good. I'm not going to this show, you know, and I was busy. So I ended up not going and, and I turned on Instagram. We've, you know, we, we follow each other and we look at each other's stuff and comment here and there. And I remember turning on uh, Instagram a couple months ago and Forbes had an article listing the top 10 highest earners in social media in 2023. And one of them was him. He had made, I think it was 25 or 26 million just in social media last year. And I remember standing in my kitchen and I went, I love this guy because what he did was he stayed in his lane. Mm -hmm. He knew what he wanted. He knew where he was going. And he found his niche and his niche was TikTok and social media. He he's really great at what he does, but what he's so good at doing is work doing what we call crowd work, where he works with the audience, it, which is an improvisational mm -hmm. ability that not a lot of people can do. It's an in the moment interaction. And he does it in this really sweet way where he's very endearing, but he's funny. And it was those videos that he made that he capitalized on and made this massive success. And now he's a household name and he deserves. I wrote him the other day and I was just like, you're so deserving of your success. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, learning to stay in your lane, I think, is, is the best advice that I could give to somebody, even more than the social marketing advice, even more than the YouTube advice would be. Know what your lane is, stay in it, and just work harder than anyone else in the room at moving in that lane towards your ultimate vision. And no matter what the naysayers say, no matter how much criticism you get, if you know where you're headed and you stay in that lane, you will arrive at your destination. That is brilliant insight. And I've seen it in my career where you have uh, opportunity hoppers and they're just like, I'm going to try this for a little bit. Now I don't get traction. Okay. I'm going to come over here. I'm going to try this. I don't, I don't get traction. And they never stay uh, in a pursuit long enough to become an expert at it or to see if they can really be good. They, they, they don't want to go through the, the dream struggle victory, or they don't want to go through the obstacles. They're looking for that quick, like, Hey, can I be, can I have a home run or a grand slam instantly? And, you know, I've seen it in, in entrepreneurs, right? Well, I'm going to test this out. It didn't work. Okay, I'm going to do this. Talk a little bit about what you've learned in your career, because I'm sure that you've seen that, right? People in, you know, Hollywood, they're, they're looking, it's like, well, I'm looking for that quick home run. Nope. Okay, I didn't get it. I'm going to go try this. I'm going to go try that. And then they constantly, they are, their entire life is try, 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 quit, try, quit, right? They never 
just stay anywhere long enough to actually develop some skill set, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's. I would say almost everyone I know that I've ever met that comes into this business says the same thing. Well, I'm just going to come here for two years and see how it goes. And I know right then and there that unless they win a lottery ticket, which mm -hmm. almost all of them will not. Yeah. Meaning they hop into addition for a job that gives them instantaneous success, which happens to almost no one, uh, that they will fail. Mm -hmm. If you come in, I'm just going to give this a shot and see how it works out. You're done. You're done. Because you've already told me you do not have the fortitude or the vision to go where you're headed. A lot of people come into this business because they were the best looking or were told they were the best looking or most talented person in their school or their college or their hometown or whatever. You get a lot of those people. And I call them head turners. I didn't date for a long time in Hollywood because you have a lot of head turners. And what head turners are, you find this a lot in social groups in Hollywood, especially uh, nightclubs and bars that a lot of the younger people go to. It's the people that are always looking for someone else that might be more important than you that might get them where they want to go. So they're never really present in the conversation because there might be someone more important that can take me where I want to go. Yeah. Now, in the sense of leveraging relationship, there's a certain level of business acumen to that. But they're users. And most of them, if they ever find success, will lose it just as quickly because they did not develop the character that it takes to maintain a career. You know, I, I've watched people like the, the largest movie star of the present age is Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. People love to hate on him because of his religious belief. And I, I think it's amazing how we choose to criticize certain people's religious belief, certain people's religious belief versus not other people's religious belief. And that's a whole conversation unto itself. But it, who cares uh, yeah. what he believes? What, which, by the way, has seemed to serve him quite well, regardless. Yeah. Um, the beautiful thing about Scientology uh, is in, 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 the, in the positive aspects of it, depending on what any listener's view is of it, and probably if someone has a strong opinion of it, they probably haven't studied it thoroughly. But uh, um, trust me, I'm not a Scientologist and have no desire to be one. But the beauty of it is it cleanses you of negativity and negative thoughts and, 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 and encourages you to focus only on what is good, which ironically enough, it's a biblical principle. It's what people of other religious systems are supposed to be doing. And so really what that gives room for is radical faith. I have no tolerance for negativity. I have no tolerance for someone to speak ill of others. I have no tolerance for anything except that which is good, wholesome, worthy, worthy and praiseworthy. Uh, I am going to focus on where I'm headed. And that's what Tom has done. And in his life, he's not only been a great thespian, he's been an incredible producer. He's been an incredible networker of people. You talk to anybody that's ever worked with them, you only hear uh, uh, positive stories. He also has 10 commercial licenses or 10 licenses to fly 10 different type of aircraft, every type of plane to helicopter. He is a, he is a uh, Navy SEAL level um, uh, certified uh, 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 skydiver. He does all of his own stunts, and he's in his 60s. It's crazy. 
And so when I look at success within this business, if you trace back to the beginning of his story, he fell in love with storytelling, with cinema, so much that he was doing, I don't know the exact numbers, but I've heard it on the streets that he did so many student films and so many independent projects. Uh, The same was true with Ed Asner. When I worked with Ed Asner, Ed Asner said yes to everything someone asked of him because he had no ego in the game. And so uh, he would do regional theater, he would do independent movies, and yet you look at his career, uh, he has more, I think it's more uh, Emmys for, for acting than I think, I believe this is true, and you can double check me on this, than any actor in history. Um, he, uh, and yet he went to his grave uh, uh, the last couple of projects being independent projects, helping other artists. And so I think what Ed was really in love with, and what I think what Tom is really in love with, and I can name other, other thespians like this, is they are in love with creating and helping other creators. Mm-hmm. And I think when you fall in love with the creative process, and that sits at the forefront of whatever business you're in, and then you commit to a vision, to creating it and seeing it until it is done, you'll be successful. Uh, so well said. So falling in love with the process, whatever, wherever you're at, enjoying the process and the process actually being more meaningful to you than the actual destination or the rewards. Tom's not motivated by a trophy. He's not motivated by a credit or the accolades of Hollywood. He's actually he's motivated by the, the the process of actually doing it and just being great at his art, right? And and so when I take a look at entrepreneurs, business leaders that motivate and inspire me, none of them are motivated by the the things that their success has garnered for them, but they just love being in the game. Their particular game, wherever their career is, whether they're running a restaurant, whether they're creating software, you know, whether they're in the aviation industry, they just love the aspect. They're they're calling and they love the process. Yeah. I mean, you know, Tom would Tom would summarize it as, and you you hear if you watch any any interviews that he did promoting the last Top Gun, he is so in love with making the audience happy. To this mm. day, he puts on a hat and sneaks into cinemas all the time around the world just to watch movies. He mm. loves to watch the reaction. He loves movies. Uh, and and uh, there's other people that, you know, love certain products. They, they love, uh, like, look at um, uh, Berkshire Hathaway. Um, uh, Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett. Still living in the same house he raised his kids in. He drives a pickup truck, eats you know McDonald's every day, drinks you know two cokes or whatever. He's not doing what most people should tell him he should do as a long-term billionaire. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't care about money. What he loves is numbers, and he mm-hmm. loves watching them duplicate. Mm-hmm. So it's money. It was not a matter of, oh, I got to prove something to my high school professor and become rich or, you know, that woman that scorned me or proving it to my parents or whatever. And if someday if I have 12 houses and and there's nothing wrong with having 12 houses and having 50 houses or 100 houses or whatever, like they become very useful if you allow others to use them or, you know, for you on occasion. But um, 
you know, there's there's an old saying. There's no you from a African American pastor. Um, there ain't no U-Haul behind your hearse. Mm-hmm. Your whole life is measured by how much money and how much merchandise you acquire. You're going to be a miserable old man once you get old, mm-hmm. because because the the true wealth. I remember talking to my brother about this. Um, I think it was like 20 years ago. I said to him, I said, uh, I said, Dal, I said, um, um, don't you ever just get frustrated trying to like get to where you're going? And, you know, there's just so many obstacles. And I was just having like this, you know, uh, younger man's uh, uh, five minutes of complaint. And he paused and he goes, no. I said, what do you mean? He goes, because I decided when I was young that wealth to me would be quantified by the value of my relationships. And so that's what I invested in. And by that measure, I'm a wealthy man. Mm. And 20 years later, it is still the same value system. Mm. His investments have paid off and you look at his life and he's surrounded by wealthy, uh, uh, by a vast array of wealth that is quantified by his relationships. And sometimes, those of us that, and I will include myself in this, can, can be very um, ambitious when it comes to business. It would, it would behoove us to sit back and assess ourselves in our older age and determine if all of the energy and isolation and time that we're putting into building wealth in the monetary sense or the acquired sense is really going to be what makes us happy in the long run. And I think what is the the, the best life is balance. Mm. It is understanding that what's going to be most important in the long run is going to be the wealth of your relationships and uh, the experiences of your life and not to rob yourself of those while you are uh, achieving your goals, but then balancing within that the achievement of your goals. Because many of the goals that you have set out can also provide a very good living and existence for those people in your life that you have developed relationships with and to the strangers uh, that will come around them and to all those that you will leave behind when you pass on to the next existence. So I think, you know, um, yeah, I think I, I consider that a lot as I enter my 50s. You have learned quite a bit in your career, uh, both professionally to be able to be a, a world-class, uh, use your term, thespian in multiple genres and a musician and singer. Um, and I, it, it strikes me that you are still a lifelong learner. Can you share like, the importance of uh, mentorship or coaching? I, I, it strikes me that you've got to have people in your life that you are, that are maybe ahead of you, um, but that you're, you're seeking knowledge, you're continuing to grow. And this, this growth journey for you is very important. That's what I'm, I'm garnering from our conversation today. Uh, can you share with the audience how you view that and what you're doing? Yeah, always in my life. Um, I, I didn't I didn't learn as well through formal education as some of the people did. I learned through the narrative, the stories of my life. And so um, whenever I was interested in anything, I would just seek out someone who was really good at it. And then I would ask them a lot of questions and listen. And so I learned a lot of things about a lot of things from people who had a lot to teach me about those things. Hmm. 
But within that, I always did a tremendous amount of reflecting and introspection. Um, I always approached life from, from a perspective of what can I learn? And what I found interesting about teaching and coaching, which I do both in the metaphysical arena, meaning some people call it life coaching, I, I call it metaphysical, because the way in which I coach is much more about learning to shift the way you speak and think and how to work with energy and natural universal laws, which is what fascinates me. And once I started doing it, my life changed. And then I also work with people in the carnal sense and the profession that I work in, which is, uh, you know, singing and acting and doing uh, voiceovers and that sort of thing. Um, and what I've discovered th about teaching is that you learn so much more when you coach and teach. Because when you have to coach and teach, you have to help other people understand it. You know, in the echelon of, of spiritual things, you have knowledge. Knowledge, it is said, begets wisdom, meaning it leads to. And yet there are people that have levels of wisdom that have very little knowledge, meaning, you know, we live in the information age where we have more access to knowledge than ever before. And yet we have more foolishness and ignorance than ever before. Mm -hmm. So knowledge clearly is not the answer. Um, you can get to levels of wisdom through knowledge, but there are people that have what we call street smarts. So they have wisdom on certain things with ha without having hardly any knowledge about practical matters. Then above wisdom is understanding. And understanding is whatever fragments of wisdom you ascertain in your existence, you have traveled through, you have experienced, you have processed, and then you can turn around and explain it. And then above understanding is virtue. And that is the arena of God or the universe or multiverses, depending on how you look at that. Uh, and there's a whole conversation that, that can be had on how you learn to reside within that. And you don't have to climb that, that ladder to get to where you were supposed to be awakening to all along. But uh, what is really cool about teaching and coaching is that it forces you to apply understanding. And so by applying understanding, you then garner more knowledge and wisdom beneath that uh, because those that you are coaching and teaching also become your teacher. That's amazing. I'm just jotting some notes here as you're, you're talking. So what it, in, the, in this story arc of your journey, when it's all said and done, what do you want your legacy to be? How would you like to be remembered? What do you want to accomplish when, when, when it's all said and done? I would primarily like to be remembered as a person who loved well. That's primarily what I would like to be remembered as. I think there's many ways to love. Um, love is both a lion and a lamb. We're in love with the lamb. Many of the modern depictions of saviors have been on the side of the lamb. Sacrificial, giving, tender, meek. Everybody loves that because it's non-threatening. But some of the greatest love that has ever been done for humanity has been done as a lion. And we've diminished the lion within society. The lion is seen often in the mother of children. 
but women have been known to lift cars off of babies as a lion in order to protect them. Uh, try uh, messing with the cubs of a bear and see what that mother bear does to you. You want that lion. Um, and we particularly need that. We need it in men and women, but we particularly need that within men. Um, and so I want to be remembered as a person that stood up and uh, was willing to lay down his life if necessary for what is true. Because there is no love without truth and there is no truth without love because love is the truth. That's why I, it does not surprise me that some of my greatest successes have literally been labeled with the word truth. Truth in advertising, as an example. I was the first person to break the fourth wall um, as a spokesperson in the commercials for Nordnet and tell people like it was. And that has been emulated now by numerous brands. And I, I am quite confident in my life, I will be given the opportunity to speak the truth in love. Um, and what that looks like will be determined from whatever scenarios I am placed within but I hope that I'm remembered primarily for my love. That's so well said. There was a question that you wanted to ask me, I think, as well, that uh, I think you wrote me that I would, I would love Please, to answer. Please, I was about ready to ask you if there's uh, – I've got one final question at the very end. I think you know what that one is, but – um, is there anything I mean, we've, I, I'm so blessed by the time that you have graciously given us in our audience today. And I want to be respectful, but, um, of you and your, your busy schedule there in California. Uh, but is, is there anything that, uh, we haven't covered insights, knowledge to use to, to knowledge, wisdom, and understanding that you have that you'd like to pass on to the audience, um, that you feel would be meaningful? Yeah. I think before that, that big final question, um, I just think that, Whatever it is that you want to do, and that can change at any point in your life, remove all the restrictions, all the naysayers, uh, remove all the limitations, remove all of the fears. In fact, confront them because past your fear, it is said, is your destiny. Um, no one else can live your life for you. Only you can do that. So whatever is standing in your way, you will look back in your life one day and recognize was only in your mind. Mm -hmm. Only limitations that exist reside within your mind. And when you really get that, you'll begin to function differently. So if you want to be an actor, by all means, go be an actor. If you want to be a singer, you want to be a politician, you want to be a business owner, you want to be a doctor, you want to change professions. You want to change them more than once in your life. You want to do five to 10 different things in your life. You want to do them at the same time. Do it. Just like Nike said, just do it. Uh, the, the, the minute you step out of the boat and begin walking on the water, I'll, I'll tell this story. There's the story in the New Testament of uh, uh Jesus being gone from the 12 people that he was coaching and teaching about what he had discovered. And 
a couple of them were fishermen and they were out fishing one day and they look in the distance and they think they see someone walking on water, which anyone would go, surely we're seeing a mirage, right? Like this is this impossible, right? My logical brain is, is, you know, not processing this. And yet they look closer and they're pretty sure and without thinking, and that's an important thing to note, without cognitively heavily processing it, Peter jumps out of the boat, just starts walking on water and running towards what he believes to be Jesus, his, his coach, mm-hmm. his mentor. And when he realizes after already running towards his goal, that he is walking or running on water, he starts to sink. And Jesus goes, hey, hey, Peter, look at me, look at me. And when Jesus looked, or when Peter looks at him, he stops sinking and he walks over and meets Jesus. And the point of that is when you know where you're headed and you keep your vision like a horse with blinders, only on that end goal. You stop looking behind you at the wake of the boat as it's, you know, the motor's running. And, you know, many people, when they're in boats, stand on the back and they look at where they've come from. And that's good. Remembrance is good. Jewish culture is built off of that. You need to know mistakes so you don't repeat them. But the most important thing to do is turn around and look at the front of the boat where you're headed. When you do that, there is zero limitations. I don't even like the phrase, the sky's the limit, because there's so much past what you perceive to be the sky. Mm. There simply is no limitations. And the truth is, you're actually a superhero living on Earth, and you've been told you're a turkey living amongst eagles, when in fact, you're an eagle. My dad, I'm going to tell you one more story, used to tell the story of this eagle that... Uh, build its nest high up on a cliff and it flew to get food one day and the egg fell out of the cliff and it uh, tumbled down the hill and wound up in, in the middle of a flock of turkeys. And the egg hatched because the turkeys cared for it and it came out. And the first thing it saw was turkeys. So it thought it was a turkey. Walked around, act like a turkey, walked like a turkey, balked like a turkey. Used to stare up into the heavens all day long and see these eagles with their wings spread wide, flying and thinking to itself, man, I wish I could do that, but I can't because I'm a turkey. And eventually one day, as the story goes, he walked over to the water to get some drink and for the first time he sees his reflection. When he sees his reflection, he notices that he's actually not a turkey, he's an eagle. And because he realizes who he is, he spreads his wings and flies. And the only thing that separated him from flying all those years was knowing who he was, which is the true message of the New Testament. If you know who you are, you will do even greater things than Jesus did. But if you draw your limitation on whoever Jesus was, you won't even climb to that existence. Jesus said himself, you'll do even greater things than me. And the only reason we don't is because of what we believe. We should do a podcast sometime on these matters. We need to. We need to. You, you t- tell me when. <laughs> I tell you what, my goodness, Danny, you have given us a ton of information today. And um super excited for our audience to be able to hear this and learn from you. And we're definitely going to have you back. I can't wait. Um, but I, I, there's one. Uh, before we go to my final question, for people who want to follow you, 
and uh, track your great work and all the success that you're having and maybe communicate with you on social media? Where are the best places for people to connect with you and follow you online? Sure. I'm super accessible. Everything is simply my name. So uh, I don't spend a lot of time on, on Twitter these days or, or X uh, as much as I love it and, and, and love the innovation of its owner. Um, I am mostly on Instagram, uh, Facebook, uh, and I'm, it's just my name, Danny Fazenfeld, D-A-N-N-Y, and then F as in Frank, E-H, S as in Sam, E-N, F as in Frank, E-L-D as in David. Awesome. That's my handles. We will make sure to put links to both of those uh, in the show notes, and also we will link to the various books that you have referenced. Uh, so and if, you've, if you've got any others, uh, any books recently that you've read that have been really impactful for your career? I mean, my goodness, all the, um, the territory that we've covered today, I could tell that you're a voracious reader, and you probably have 30 or 40 of them that you could rattle off. But are there a, a top one, two, three books that you'd say, hey, these were um, monumental books in my career to help me with my thinking or help me in business? What would those be? Well, I read a lot of books in my 20s. Um, I was told to stop reading with inside myself a number of years ago, and I became a, a student of nature and of universal laws. Um, but um, so when I say I learned through the narrative, I learned through the stories of my life. Um, okay. But on the subjects that we've talked about, um, I would say anyone who has uh, curiosity at the at the starting point of their financial uh, perspectives. Mm-hmm. I think a really great book to start with is um, Rich Dad Poor Dad, mm-hmm. uh, just to change your mindset on money. And then, of course, his follow up, The Cash Flow Quadrant, I think is great. Um, in the areas of getting started within um, the the changing of your subconscious mind, a really good starting point book is uh, one called The Power of the Subconscious Mind. I'm trying to remember the name of the writer off of that. It's got a blue blue cover, um, but I could yeah. find a resource for you. The Power of the Subconscious Mind. Okay. Those two would be great starting points. Fantastic. We'll put it in the show notes. And final question. I've really enjoyed uh, hearing the answers uh, of business leaders from around the world, not just here in the United States, but Canada, Latin America, uh, Europe, Africa. But I've asked all of our guests uh, over the last, say, year, uh, this particular question. Imagine the president of the United States has contacted you and said, you know what? I want you to give the State of the Union address. You've got the microphone. You're going to be on national television. I want you to address the American people. And um, what would you say? Uh, how would you unite our country? And uh, how would you motivate and encourage uh, us as a nation today? I think I would say something like this. I would start with a caution and conclude with a promise. The caution I would say is this. If you study um, world history, be it the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, or others, um, there's a few things that always precede their downfall. And you know, there is a quote by, I can't remember if it's Lenin or Stalin. He said, the surest way to overtake a culture is to infiltrate their ranks and oversex them, meaning get them so distracted by entertainment that they forget their own humanity. And so what always precedes the downfall of an empire is one of three things. If, a, if an empire or a great country loses introspection, 
meaning the ability to travel within and assess oneself, that that empire will begin to crumble. If that empire loses concrete thinking, meaning the, the ability to gather and process information, it will begin to crumble. If an empire loses personal responsibility, meaning the ability to take responsibility for one's own thoughts, words, and actions, that empire will begin to crumble. The United States has lost all three. And so we are in a downward spiral of being uh, disintegrated from within. And the great nations of the world are sitting back and observing as we undo ourselves. Our greatest threat is not nuclear bombs or, inf or infiltration by foreign entities. Our greatest threat is the self-destruction of our minds. The no policy change, no ideology, no political system, no leader uh, will ever be the solvency. There is only one thing that can precede the salvation of this particular country. And it is this. Until you place at the forefront the pursuit of what is true. Um, there is nothing else that will prevent uh, the downward spiral. At the forefront of every endeavor, of every pursuit, must be the pursuit of truth. And when you discover truth, you must then be seeking to find out what is even truer than that. And when you discover that, you must be seeking to find out what is even truer than that. And what is even truer than that? And what is even truer than that? When you place at the forefront of the mindsets of your people the pursuit of truth, it will lead you to love. And love always has the final word. Uh, it is the end of every story. It is the solvency for every disease. It is the answer for every problem, but it cannot exist unless it, it, it is brought unto itself by truth itself. And so my, my desire for the nation would be that we once again, or at least for the first time, care about whether or not something is true more than anything else. Wow. So well said. Great words for our country. Wish you could deliver that address in a true State of the Union address to the American people. And as we started this conversation today, we started with remembering La La Land and the journey of those characters all the way through their story arc and what they learned. And they found love, both of them, at the end. It was a different love than what they had originally thought about, but they both found their end destination and love in that story. And today, Danny, we started with you and your story arc, and you have delivered knowledge and then wisdom and understanding that you've garnered in your journey. And at the very end, you have also shown us uh, not only what you love, what you appreciate, 
Uh, you've also shared love with our audience by delivering knowledge and wisdom and understanding and blessing us with your time. So uh, as a friend, I just want to say thank you. I feel very blessed. I'm wishing you continued success in all that you do, and I can't wait to have you back on the podcast. Right back at you. I really appreciate your kind words, and uh, I really enjoyed my time with you and look forward to doing it again. I can't wait. Today's episode was engineered by Mitch White with graphic and marketing by Tristan White. Special thanks to our guest, Danny Faisenfeld, for taking time to give us an inside look behind a career in Hollywood. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or wherever you go to listen to great podcasts. If you like the show, please share it with a friend and give us a review. That is always appreciated. Thank you for spending time with us today, and we look forward to bringing you another interview next week from another interesting leader doing fascinating things in the world.